You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. The motto of the United States Air Force is aim high, fly, fight, win. My special guest today did indeed live up to that motto. I am honored to have as my special guest Colonel Caesar Antonio Rodriguez. His handle is Rico, and he is known as the last Mick Killer. Welcome to the program, Colonel. Good morning, Pete, and good morning, America. Well, thank you, sir. Is it okay if I call you Rico? Yes, please do. Uh, if you call right. me Caesar, I will think that something's going on wrong. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. It makes me feel like a fighter pilot, okay? <laughs> uh, you are, I know you were military, Brad. I'd like you to tell uh, briefly about your childhood and why you chose the Citadel, and then why did you choose the Air Force? So, Pete, again, thank you for the opportunity. Um, yeah, the, the privilege to be a, a, a dependent uh, was an incredibly shaping, uh, a great opportunity to shape where, where I am today. Uh, my father was in the Army. <clears throat> Uh, he served for 22 years. Um, we we traveled uh, to many places that I think under normal situations we would have never gotten that opportunity. Um, uh, as as we went uh, through South and Central America, through all through through the East and West Coast of, of the United States, we just learned a lot uh, as kids uh, and as a family, uh, not only about our culture but also about our. Uh, uh, our service, our community, our the, the men and women in, in uniform. So, it, for me, it was an inspiration to continue to go forward. Um, it, it turned out that uh, when I was making my college decisions, uh, I I was focused on trying to go to West Point, and West Point was my my target place, and and I was uh, and, and that's where you know my, my dad wanted me to go as well. As it turned out, uh, I was not accepted into. I was accepted into West Point, but lost my opportunity to go because of a uh, administrative error on where I filed my application from. Uh, the good news was that my my uh, coach in, in high school um, uh, was also familiar with with many of the military schools, um, and so he had mentioned to me that uh, there was two other schools that he would he thought I should consider. Uh, VMI and the Citadel, uh, neither one of which I had any any real knowledge about, uh, other than the, that they were military schools, and it was the Citadel who uh, was the one who responded first. So uh, off I went to Charleston, uh, South Carolina, uh, with a lot of hair, and uh, <laughs> and, and in very short order, uh, it was gone. So I joined the uh, the, the class of eighty one. As we call ourselves, the, the knobs of '77, and uh, I joined the class of '81, and uh, I really, uh, truly, a life-changing um, event uh, for me. Um, life-changing in the form of, uh, you know, I learned uh, not only uh, what it was like to to be humbled to a level that uh, I would say, uh, for some people, would break you. Um, but for me, I thought the, for me, it was a, a strengthening position. Um, 
there was days at the Citadel where uh, where the the real only solution that I was thinking about was quitting, and I have to thank Father Sam Milarisi for uh, for keeping me uh, focused on the core and and keeping me in the game. Um, but then again, it, it, as the Citadel process matured from knob to sophomore, and then eventually the senior year, uh, the the core capabilities and skills and and uh, and uh, the, the core capabilities and skills that allowed me to be successful in combat from the standpoint of having confidence in in what I was doing because of the hard work that I and my teammates had put together to prepare um, and the and the ability to feel comfortable in the decision making matrix of of uh, being in combat where decisions are not measured in calendar years or months, but in, in milliseconds, uh, those, those skills of confidence and decision-making came from everything I learned at the Citadel, um, uh, from, from knob year all the way till we, uh, walked across the stage. So, uh, um, I can't say I was uh, destined to be in the military, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, I had a lot of opportunities coming out of Puerto Rico to come back and, and run uh, businesses for for friends and the family. Um, and uh, but the real truth was, is um, the Citadel opened the door again for me to to relook at the military as an, a life option, and it's definitely one option that I would never, I do, I never regretted, and never will regret uh, either the Citadel or the military. All right, understand. You uh, you were raised uh, an army child. Uh, how come you ended up in the Air Force? Well, I, I guess I could uh, slam my brothers in the army and said that uh, I, I wanted to when I deployed, I wanted to live in a five star hotel, not in a tent. Um, <laughs> but the real truth was, is uh, uh, it, it was also the Air Force who came forward at the middle of my sophomore year. When I took a series of uh, tests for flying for flight school, um, and uh, the Air Force program to go to flight school uh, was much more attractive than the options that were available. Even though I had qualified for for Army and Naval Aviation uh, as a follow-on uh, to the Citadel, the, the Air Force program was uh, was more enticing, and um, and so I jumped on the bandwagon to. Uh, uh, to to go Air Force uh, about the middle of my sophomore year, and uh, and go from there. So, um, but yeah, you know, uh, we we joke a lot about uh, uh, which service takes care of their people the best. Um, I you know I think we all try all the services try real hard to take really good care of their people, um, but uh, the 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 actual mission of uh, of potentially being able to fly in a single-seat airplane, uh, first in the A-10 and then in the F-15 later on, but a single-seat airplane that that has to work uh, independently as as a as a as a as a war machine, but in in conjunction with all of the other airplanes and all of the other capabilities of war, uh, that was just uh, that was icing on the cake. I understand. Did you? Uh... I know you took the Cessna training and things like that, but when you got your first assignment in the Air Force as a pilot, you were assigned to that lovable A-10 Warthog 
I think anybody in America that loves aviation has to love that airplane. Tell us a little bit about the A-10 Warthog and, and how, did, how did you like it? Yeah, the, the, the Warthog was, was, a, was a truly phenomenal mission uh, airplane uh, from the standpoint of it had a, a dedicated uh, mission space, close air support in support of the ground forces uh, and, and nothing else. Um, we concentrated 100% of our time on that mission, and, and that's what really made it uh, what I call a, a true gem um, to um, to learn how to fly it is one thing. To learn how to employ it is another thing, and I was uh, lucky enough that I went to my first assignment was Korea, um, and I was uh, we opened up a brand-new squadron at Suwon Air Base in Korea, uh, and for two years, I got to fly um, as close to uh, real combat uh, missions uh, on a day-to-day basis in support of the Army Air Tasking Order uh, along the, uh, the the border of North and South Korea. Th- th- those missions really uh, honed your skills of, uh, of understanding the complexity of air power, and how to surgically apply it uh, as required. Um, obviously, we never had a conflict at that point, but um, when we went north uh, into uh, the training areas, uh, which were south of the North Korean border, when we went into those areas, all the procedures and the processes that we uh, used to get in and get out and, uh, and employ our weapons were the same things that we were doing. We would do if if, uh, if combat operations. Uh, were to erupt, so uh, we were we were on the the leading edge in that environment, and that was just a blast. Uh, you know, there there are those folks who say if if you see an A ten above five five thousand feet, then the pilot probably has a nosebleed, and that's true. We like to be <laughs> around a hundred to five hundred feet. Uh, that's where, that, uh, that is great. Uh, <coughs> I can't interrupt. You have to go to a first break. We'll be back in just a couple minutes, folks. Please stand by. Thank you, Rico. All right, Pete. Thank you. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you're already a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. 
If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with uh, Colonel Caesar Rico Rodriguez, better known as the last Nick Killer. Colonel, I have to ask you this. Uh, I love that A-10 Warthog. What was it like inside the cockpit when you fired that automatic cannon underneath your seat? <laughs> well, I'll be honest with you, Pete. Uh, you know, when you when you witness the destruction of 30-millimeter uh, rounds at two and three miles away, um, inside the cockpit, it was, it was serenely quiet. Um, sure. the only, re- the only real register that you had applied lethal, uh, firepower against the target was, uh, on the G meter inside the cockpit. Uh, every fighter cockpit has a G meter, uh, to, to not only warn the pilot of, of how many G's they're pulling, but also for the maintenance team to look at it and to see uh, how bad the pilot broke the airplane. Um, but when, when we shot the gun, uh, the G-meter would peg out at plus 9 and minus 9 Gs because of the vibrations, the, the, the vibrations caused uh, by the rounds of the bullets leaving the airplane, uh, you know, being expended out of the airplane. So that was the only real indication um, that you had, uh, that obviously, plus the fact that you went master arm a hot, but that was the only indication that, that you saw it. So it was really weird that uh, you would, you could be on the ground as a range control officer and see the, the just total devastation of a target, but in the cockpit, it was, uh, it was as quiet as can be. Most of the time, most of the time, the only thing you would hear is, is the, when the pilot would yell, yeehaw! You know, whenever he he or she uh, took out a target, but that's it. Did, what what was the rounds per minute that got the gun? Well, uh, we carried uh, a little over fourteen hundred rounds, and if you squ- if you squeeze the trigger, um, which we weren't we didn't do because you literally could melt the barrels. If you squeeze the trigger for a full three seconds, you'd be gone. You'd have zero weapons left. So we would literally shoot in bursts of uh, two to three hundred at a time, and that was uh, if you blink your eye once, that's about three hundred rounds. Oh my goodness gracious! Uh, tell us a little bit about your transition from the A10 to the F15 Eagle. Well, you know I can't uh, start this transition without saying that I apologize to the audience for using the F word. But uh, my transition from the A-10 to the F-15 started uh, in Almogordo, New Mexico, where I met my lovely bride, Trish Rodriguez, and we started on our family journey. So family is the F word that uh, I-, I won't apologize for. Um, I-, I learned uh, a lot about uh, a new type of flying at, at Holloman Air Force Base, and uh, when my time came up, uh, to, to make a transition, uh, at, at the completion of my tour, 
um, I, I went back to my child, my, my original dream, which was to fly the F-15. And so, uh, uh, I was selected to go fly the F-15 and, uh, and very quickly Trish and I left Alamogordo and we went to, uh, to Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And then I went to, to, on temporary duty to Tyndall where we had the F-15 training. Um, and in very similar ways, the F-15 has one mission space, which is air dominance and air superiority. We didn't carry bombs. We didn't, uh, we had a Gatling gun that was purely for air to air, uh, employment. Uh, so at the time, the F-15 was purely an air to air, uh, dogfighting machine. The job was to, to gain, establish and sustain air superiority over the battle space. Uh, so it, it, like the FBA 10, every mission was focused on the capabilities of the jet. And the jet was just a phenomenal machine. Um, I always tell folks uh, that most of the jets that we fly in the Air Force and the, the fighter jets around the world, uh, flying the airplane is one thing. Employing the airplane, that's a different animal altogether uh, because that's really, the, that's where you make the difference between life and death. That's where you make the difference between mission success and mission failure. And so the, the missions that we would fly in the F-15s uh, at, at the time, you know, let's just say you had a, a one-hour mission, uh, we would debrief that mission uh, for literally three to four hours for a one-hour mission. So you made more hay in the sense of in the debrief because you were able to look at the, at the performance of the jet, the performance of the pilot, uh, review that information through... Through through, uh, auto, uh, through recording devices that were in the jet, and then uh, uh, set your goal to the next level and, and keep getting better and better. And so uh, the successes that we enjoyed in, in Desert Storm came because of the level of training that we uh, that we went through as we were uh, learning how to fly the jet, uh, and then more important, learning how to employ the jet. Sir, you were you were uh, involved in the Operation Just Cause. That was the invasion of Panama. Tell the folks a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, so obviously, uh, uh, Panama was a unique animal in the sense that uh, uh, we, we didn't know what the the other partners in the region or non partners, the hostile partners in the region, were going to do. So, yeah. Like a good, well-planned uh, event uh, for Panama, the F-15 task was to sit off the uh, the western coast of Cuba, and if the Cubans were to have launched any kind of uh, an intercept attack against the uh, the forces that were being flown into Panama, then our job would have been to uh, to take them out. So we uh, we flew out of uh, Fort Walton Beach, Florida, uh, hit the tankers over the Gulf. Um, and then we set up caps um, along the uh, the western side of uh, Cuba and um, south of Cuba, just in case anything did get through. And then we were able to, to electronically monitor the flow of uh, of airlift assets and the C uh, and the one seventeens um, as they proceeded to go down into Panama and and um, and execute that invasion uh, mission. Did you did you ever see any kind of threat out of Cuba? None at all. 
Um, I, you know, um, I would imagine that if they saw something on radar, uh, they would have seen the magnitude of the force that was involved, and uh, smart money would have been just to stand down and, and let it happen. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Let's move on to the Gulf War. Uh, I'm going to let you run with it, sir. It's all yours. Well, the Gulf War is, uh, you know, we're celebrating our 30th anniversary uh, this year, and uh, uh, it, it was a culmination of a lot of things. The lessons learned from, from Vietnam generated uh, training opportunities like Red Flag out at Nellis, where uh, pilots, uh, air crew, uh, and eventually joint forces learned how to operate in the first uh, seven to ten days of a conflict through uh, through task saturation, uh, intense mission planning, and, and equally as important, intense uh, mission debrief. And so, uh, the benefits that we that we took to war was that many of us in Desert Storm had been through the Red Flag or other major flag programs uh, that included. Uh, Training with uh, light airplanes and training with uh, with non uh, U.S. platforms, both from the coalition standpoint and from the air standpoint of, uh, of airplanes that uh, we were uh, we had acquired. Uh, the U.S. government had acquired, and we were training against uh, Russian airplanes. So we were a very well prepared force. We were very well equipped force. Um, as I said, the the lessons of de- of of Vietnam, uh, we were the beneficiaries both from a technology standpoint, from an investment and training standpoint, uh, and then ultimately uh, being able to go there with uh, uh, with a very highly skilled team. Um, but that does not take away, uh, you know, I, I tell folks that uh, um, Desert Storm might have seemed easy from the bystander perspective that uh, we did. We did more than our job, but but I can guarantee you, I know from my standpoint, uh, I flew my first mission in, in combat with uh, with white boxers, and when I came back, they were very brown, because war, war scared the shit out of me, uh, and I apologize for using the S word, uh, but war scared me to bejesus. Um, but that's where the training kicked in. And the training kicked in uh, on the 19th and on the 26th of January for me. On the 19th of January, my wingman and I, Craig Underhill, his handle is Mole. You can figure that one out. Um, we uh, we were tasked to provide a post-strike sweep, which is protect the back end of the strike package so that they can get to the target and get out safely. Uh, as it turned out, the post-strike sweep uh, was actually the the second engagement of the MiGs that day because the pre-strike sweep that went in ahead of the strike package also engaged and killed uh, three enemy aircraft. In the post-strike sweep, we had MiGs that came out of Baghdad, and their job was to uh, lure us into the Baghdad uh, missile engagement zone and try and shoot us down with their surface-to-air missiles. Again, all of what I just said, I did not realize uh, was their plan we did not realize it until we had debriefed it and talked to Intel and realized that they held that information very close hold. Um, but we went in, uh, we identified the MiGs as hostile. Um, we 
we realized that there was a point where we were no longer going to have a weapons engagement zone and we were getting ready to turn around. Uh, and then, of course, the surprise element, which was another set of bigs, had uh, swung our 3-9 line, and they were now in the offensive position, and we were going to have to fight our way through them uh, to eventually get home. Uh, my wingman, uh, uh, I was the first one that was locked on by the by the MiG-29 right radars, and so I had to start doing defensive maneuvers while my wingman was going through uh, the identification matrix uh, to confirm that these were, in fact, hostile uh, and then to be able to take a shot, and he did. Uh, when he took his shot, uh, a Sparrow missile against the MiG-29 that was locked onto me, uh, it just so happened that that MiG-29 was no, he was about three miles off my right wing, uh, locked onto my jet. It just, he didn't have a clear field of fire through the, the electronic, uh, defenses that my jet was producing to keep him from taking a shot. So, uh, I owe my wingman, uh, my life in that environment. Um, but the thing was, is between him and I and the, and the minute and a half that it took from when we first detected the MIGs and he, and he killed the first MIG, um, we didn't say a single word to each other because we had trained uh, to a high level and we knew exactly what each other was doing. Um, wow. Shortly Kurt, after- sorry, I have to interrupt you. We're going to our session. Sure. Break. Uh, folks, we'll be right back with, with uh, Rico, the last Mick killer. Thank you so much. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmvhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Colonel Caesar Rodriguez, better known as Rico, the last Mick killer. Sir, you're a wingman. Just saved your life with a missile shot at an enemy MiG-29 in the Gulf War. Uh, take it from there, sir. Well, just as my wingman took the shot and I saw the fireball off my right wing, the uh, the Western AWACS controller uh, on on the guard frequency hollered out that there was another MiG 10 miles to the north of us. And at that point, I had to make a quick decision. Do I turn tail and run south um, and hope that he really was at 10 miles, or do I turn north? find him, engage him, kill him, and then leave home, leave back um, with a sanitized airspace and, and then 
also being able to protect the uh, the strike package. And I opted uh, for the second option, which was to turn north and find him, and we did. Uh, turned north and found him. My wingman was up at 30,000 feet. I was down at 500 feet, uh, so it made it very difficult for him to find us. Um, when I locked the MiG up, I started to look through uh, what we call uh, our eagle eye t- uh, target detection box, and um, and um, and I could not tell if he was a friendly or a foe because the the aspect of that airplane looked a lot like the friendly airplanes that we would fly that we did fly in Desert Storm, and so uh, the end solution was uh, I directed the tactic called the visual identification maneuver or a VID. And from that tactic, uh, I ended up merging uh, with that MiG about 50 feet off of his left wing. Uh, we started a classic two-circle dogfight um, in visual range and at high Gs. Uh, there was times in, in the maneuvering that I uh, that I ended up doing with my jet where I was pulling in excess of 9 Gs and, and at speeds above 500 knots. Um, but as it turned out, uh, gravity took its toll. Um we started that fight at about 8,000 feet, uh, within 200, two 360-degree turns. Um, the MiG was about 400 feet off the ground. I was about eight or 900 feet off the ground behind the MiG, getting ready to employ a weapon uh, when that MiG decided to do, execute what I call a last-ditch maneuver. Uh, it looks a lot like a split-ass maneuver, but unfortunately, uh, geometrically, he did not have the, the turning room to execute that maneuver, and he hit the hit the desert floor uh, in full glory. His afterburners were cooking. He still had a lot of gas, and um, and so that big kill, uh, which was my first, uh, was credited without having to employ a single missile, but it was all maneuvering that, that we had practiced uh, both at home at Eglin and, and, and at Red Flag as well. So... Um, it was a scary day because uh, both my wingman and I achieved our first uh, combat success. Um, and then we, we realized that we had been put to the test, and we also realized that, that there was a point where the, the Iraqi MiGs had a distinct advantage over us, and, uh, and we were also blessed that we, we applied the lessons of training. Um, our second kill, my second kill, was on the 26th of March of uh, January, uh, and that one was uh, what I would call a little bit more classic F-15. Uh, we t- detected the MiGs that were in the western uh, sector of Iraq at about 80 miles. We had close collaboration with the AWACS and the Rivet Joint platforms uh, to determine the, the both the point of origin and the and the fact that they were hostile platforms. Um, and then, as it turned out, um, at about uh, 15 miles, uh, our formation of four, led by Rory Drager, rest in peace, uh, our formation started shooting uh, at, at slightly beyond visual range. But we could almost start to see the makeout of, their, of the MiG-23 silhouettes. And Rory shot the leader. His wingman, uh, Kimo Schiavi, shot the, the northern MiG. And I shot the, the Southern MiG, and all three of those ended up in fireballs and, and scoring uh, our uh, three more kills from my squadron, uh, which at the end, uh, the squadron scored 16 air-to-air victories, the highest number of air-to-air victories of any squadron in Desert Storm. Um, and again, all attributed to the level of training 
the professionalism of uh, of the maintenance and the support teams that were on the ground, um, and and the training and the professionalism of, of the the guys who flew the missions uh, day in and day out. Um, you know, I do have to give a shout out to the maintenance team because one of the metrics that we uh, that we uh, follow on a day to day basis in in both peacetime and combat is FMC fully mission capable. That means that every jet is able to uh, take off and ex- execute the mission. Normally in peacetime, we usually maintain about an 80%, 85% FMC rate. In combat, we were at 98.4% uh, FMC rate, and that just meant that the the team, the full team at Tabuk Air Base in Saudi Arabia where we were deployed was working on all cylinders uh, like a true team should. Wow. How far was your shot? The the shot that I took against that MiG twenty three was at fourteen miles. Whew. Um, you mentioned that the MiGs had an advantage over over you guys. Uh, uh, tell me about that. Yeah, well, they basically uh, they were forward deployed at a at a land uh, uh, a highway strip location uh, uncovered by camouflage. And so when we went so far north, uh, when they launched at us, uh, they were outside of our radar coverage, and nobody knew they were there until uh, the AWACS controller saw them uh, executing an intercept on us. So they had the offensive uh, advantage of position uh, for that uh, period of time. And the fact that they locked me up first without me having a a valid look at them and a potential shot. Now, that's why I, why I say that they had the advantage in the, in the beginning. Oh, okay. Um, I would say our F-15 Eagles did an outstanding job, and they did what they were built to do, did, did, were they not? I, I echo your, your your comments. They did a phenomenal job, and, and again, it's the airplane and it's the team that supports the airplane that makes us – uh, the formidable air force and, and truly joint force that that uh, flew in Desert Storm and continues to fight today. Wow! All right, so you have two uh, two mid kills to your credit, and suddenly Yugoslavia starts ethnic cleansing of Albanians, and NATO said, "No, you're not going to do that. We're going to come over there and put a stop to it." Tell us about your uh, deployment to uh, Yugoslavia, known as the Kosovo War. The Kosovo War was uh, uh, a, a different war than than Desert Storm. Uh, different in a lot of ways, but more importantly, you know, we had we had folks who were flying combat missions from their home base up in Italy. Uh, for us, I was deployed from from Lake and Heath, uh, England, uh, and we could go back and forth to Lake and Heath on one tank of gas. So, uh, literally, my wife and my kids could see. Um, on the news, same day, same hour, same minute, what was being reported in the same, in the same time zone. So it was, it was very. Uh, uh, it was also a war that had the lessons of Desert Storm behind it. So again, technology uh, was our our ace in the hole. Training uh, was taken up to a higher level. Another ace in the hole. Um, the squadron that I flew with in Desert Storm uh, was, I would call, a mature squadron. The average guy 
in the squadron had uh, over 500 hours in the F-15. Um, when we flew in, in Kosovo, the, the, uh, we had 14 young p- pilots in the squadron, both captains and lieutenants, who had just completed their initial F-15 qual. So they didn't even have 100 hours in the F-15, but they were training-wise better prepared for war than we were when we deployed out of uh, out of England. Wow. So on night one, the 24th of March, uh, I was uh, the number three uh, of a of a four ship that was uh, asked to escort in, in a pre-strike sweep the NATO uh, contingency that would open the door through Montenegro. And I use that figuratively. We were going to blow the door, the SAMs, surface air missiles, out of the way in Montenegro. And then build a corridor, a safety uh, corridor for the other airplanes to go in and start to uh, take out the targets uh, in the uh, in the Kosovo Albania region that were executing that that cleansing mission by Slobodan Milosevic. And so we were the first to launch. Uh, we went south along the Italian coastline, and we took a big, huge left hook turn at the boot, uh, and we came in from south to north. Uh, over the Adriatic, uh, one and two were feet wet. They were flying over water. And I, myself and my wingman, Wild Bill Denham, uh, was, we were feet dry. We were flying over land. But we were what we call the Wall of Eagles, uh, and we were headed north. And as we were headed north, uh, the first contact that was discovered was a, a contact that was, uh, over water. So number one was tracking that contact to, to do the, identification matrix and uh, and then shortly after that contact was discovered and disregarded as a, a non-combatant uh, I found the, the first MiG that deployed out of the Yugoslav airspace um, as he was navigating through the mountains headed north and then turned uh, towards the south southwest which put him on an intercept course directly with the leading edge of the strike package the good news was that I was at uh, 35 plus thousand feet. Uh, I was well above the Mach number, and uh, and the the initial radar coverage uh, by the Yugoslav Air Defense Forces missed uh, my position, uh, so they they were not tracking me uh, for for uh, the early phases of the intercept. And, and my wingman and I were able to execute uh, our ID matrix and confirm it was a MiG 29. As it turned out, uh, you know, nothing lasts very long, and very quickly, uh, the the air defense forces of the Yugoslav uh, air, air defense picked my wingman I and I up, and we could start to see search radars hit our airplane and start to lock us up with uh, target tracking radar solutions, which would mean that surface air missiles would start to fly. Um, as I was executing the intercept on the MiG. I directed my wingman to turn to the west and get away from the, the sand belts. Um, I uh, took the, the shot. Um, once I had completed my ID matrix, it is still the longest combat shot uh, of an AMRAM missile. Uh, it was in excess of 37 nautical miles. Um, and, and then uh, and that missile uh, flew on track uh, to the target uh, all the way through. By the time the missile was in the air tracking the target, uh, I had also redirected my flight to, to get move further to the west to get out of the SAM uh, envelopes. 
uh, and then uh, at about uh, what is mathematically 14 miles between uh, the, the MIG and myself, uh, the, the time of flight clock in the cockpit started to, to count down three, two, one. And when the, the time of flight uh, timer hit zero, I looked off the right side of my cockpit and I saw the fireball. The fireball of this particular MiG was another unique event for me because uh, I've never seen an airplane blow up over the top of a mountain range covered in snow uh, to the point where the, a very good friend of mine who was flying in an F-15E and he was almost 100 miles away from us, um, he could see the explosion uh, and the reflection of the fireball off that mount, off the, uh, the snow. And so that was the first kill of the Kosovo War. Uh, there would be a total of six air-to-air kills during that war. My squadron had four. So again, sure. the Grim Reapers in, uh, in, in this combat operation scored the highest number of kills of any squadron, uh, in the war. Uh, and a, and a tribute to the NATO partnership, uh, the Dutch also scored, uh, an air-to-air kill with an AMRAM. Uh, Very a good. key component, uh, key component in, in coalition building. Yeah, Rico, I'm sorry to interrupt. You have to go to our last break. Fascinating story. Uh, we'll be right back, folks. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Sir, I'd like to uh, commend you for your service in our country, and this has been a fascinating show. And uh, I just wanted to mention, I don't know if you... if uh, Pete, if you or, or uh, your guest is aware of it, but groundbreaking ceremonies for are just about to happen uh, in Washington with a memorial to Desert Shield and Desert Storm folks. So uh, I was glad to hear that, and I don't know whether you all know it, but, uh, sir, if I may be so bold as to call you, if, if a grunt can call you Rico, Thank you again for your service, and this has been, your stories are just absolutely fascinating. So with that being said, you're listening to America's Web Radio, and I'm going to turn it back over to the interesting folks, Pete and Rico. Okay, thank you. Uh, Rico, you were talking about the Dutch uh, fighter pilots. Uh, Go ahead and explain that to our folks. Yeah, so part of the the lessons learned of Vietnam and then Desert Storm was to to continue to train uh, not only as a service uh, but in a joint flat fashion, and then also extended to the coalition. And so when we uh, operated in, in Operation Allied Force, the coalition, many of the coalition partners that had that participated in the air campaign. Um, literally had also trained at Nellis. So we all, as airmen, as global airmen, uh, uh, started and continue to speak a common language. Uh, and, and the beauty of it is, is a missile like AMRAM uh, allowed us to do that. So the terminology of, 
of how to employ an AMRAM is common to over 44 countries around the world. Uh, the ability to train together uh, makes the successes of missions like the Kosovo Night One operation uh, truly a, uh, a force multiplier. And so, um, you know, uh, it was great to, to see that opportunity, but obviously the Dutch were not the only ones that participated, uh, France, UK, Poland. Pete, are you there? Yeah, I'm back. Okay. What, do you know what happened to uh, Rico? Yeah, uh, we, I had a technical glitch there or something. Rico, can you still hear me? No, I think he fell off. Okay, I'm going to call back in, folks. Sorry about this. Okay, while well, we're waiting for... Uh, Pete to call back in and uh, rejoin us, and also his guest. Uh, I want to remind you that we've got great programming all the time. And uh, Pete, you still there? Uh, yeah. Pete's calling back in. Okay. Sorry about that. Yep, I don't know what happened on my end, but I think it was pilot error on my end. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I think we're back on here, uh, David. Can you hear us clearly? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You can hear us okay? Four by four. Four by four, okay. Uh, Colonel, you're back (laughs) on with us, right? Yes, I am. Sorry about that, Pete. Oh, oh, that's okay. That's what you get for living in Arizona, Colonel. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) Sir, I want you to uh, tell us a little bit about your last command and what you call the fighter's attitude. Uh, the privilege of my last command tour was to be the mission support group commander here at Davis Mountain Air Force Base in, in Tucson, Arizona. And what's unique about that is the, the team that I commanded, uh, none of them wore the flight suit. Uh, none of them had the wings of an aviator uh, on their chest. Um, but they are all critical components of the mission in order to execute uh, eventually flight operations. And so what I found in my tour was that uh, the easiest way for me to relate to each of my members, and over, over 4,000 members on, in, in, under my command, was to instill in them not the attitude that flyers are the right thing. Um, it's the attitude that everybody is a fighter pilot and that being a fighter pilot is about the mentality of first and foremost having the personal discipline to to be in shape um, and to and to prepare yourself for each task uh, to the best of your ability. The second part of being a fighter pilot is to uh, uh, to be ready to lead uh, when when you notice that there is nobody leading. Um, and then thirdly, uh, the the attitude of a fighter pilot is is that. Um, you know, second place is not a is not where you want to be 
uh, always at. You would need to strive to be in, in the first place position. Uh, when you go to combat, you need to strive to do proper mission execution to win. Um, when you when you develop your training and techniques and procedures at home base, you do them with the with the spirit and the influence of of helping others to get better. Um, and then ultimately, uh, I, I think part of the the role of a fighter pilot is to take care of every member of your family, not only the family that is. Uh, given to you, uh, you know, uh, as a uh, as a husband or a wife, but the family that's given to you as a squadron, uh, the the family that's given to you as a as a wing, and as a deployed operation team, you take care of each other. And so, when I was able to instill in everybody that they too have the fighter pilot spirit, uh, I can tell you that was the most rewarding peacetime command tour I ever experienced because everybody brought their A game and and we did not drop the ball anywhere. Um, doesn't say we were perfect, uh, but where 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 we were failing, we worked it as a team and the collective officer enlisted team work that was done during that command tour for me was uh, ultimately the, the, the most rewarding uh, peacetime event uh, that I can experience. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, Colonel, I want you to make some uh, uh, your own comments. Uh, you can decide the subject matter, but I know your thoughts on Reagan and Bush and what you call our near peers today. Go ahead, sir. Well, thank you, Pete. Uh, first and foremost, I started off by saying I wasn't going to apologize for using the F word, and I'm not. Um, family is critical to me, and it's critical to, to our nation. And it's critical to our servicemen and women. So um, we, we've, we've got to take care of each other, and uh, we've got to put them always up front. During the Reagan-Bush era, we were privileged as a nation to, uh, to exercise a modernization plan that the beneficiaries were not only just the, the, the collective country, uh, but also the men and women who wore the uniform because we were given tools uh, that allowed us to uh, unfairly uh, beat on our enemies, um, and, uh, and and we exercise that uh, responsibility with with due diligence uh, and lethality. And uh, you know, I just can't say uh, uh, you know thank you enough to having served under that era. Uh, but I also served uh, in other eras, and and uh, and I consider my time today, even in in industry, as serving. Um, and and what we're seeing today is is not only the development, but it's actually the the evolution and the acceleration of two near peers and a coalition of uh, of the unwilling, uh, the near peers being China and Russia, uh, that will contest. Uh, Global democracies and global freedoms uh, at every corner of the world, and I'm, uh, that part I'm, I'm very concerned about. Uh, although I am very confident that in the hands of our our military, uh, they are tracking uh, all the right uh, items and, and and preparing for the worst case. But the worst case of when I served in in you know from eighty one uh, to two thousand and six is very different. Today and, and I commend uh, the leaders of our services uh, to to stay uh, focused as they are uh, and work within the boundaries that they are given to make sure that uh, 
um, we are able to execute uh, the missions that go forward. Um, I also want to uh, make a comment about uh, you know retirement and the transition. Um, uh, as as I've tried to share today, I, I've had the privilege to serve um, you know for 26 years with great men and women <clears throat> as uh, as partners in combat. Um, but uh, just like anything else, um, there there was going to come a time, and there did come a time when I uh, I knew that I would be giving up my flight suit and my and my combat boots and my helmet. I'd be giving that up. And I don't regret that one bit, but um, as I share with uh, several of you before, um, the transition was uh, was the right one to do because it was a family decision. And uh, when I got up on the stage to accept my final uh, uh, retirement certificate, um, I was joined by my wife, who then also presented me with my very own Kirby vacuum cleaner with my name on it. And it even had three stars on it. So... That Kirby vacuum cleaner uh, sits in the closet. I get to use it on a regular basis, and and, uh, and retirement has been a very uh, blessed opportunity for for me and my family. And, I, and so, uh, uh, I thank you the for the opportunity to to pay it forward uh, to those who are listening. Um, and I and I hope that in some form or fashion, uh, one of the nuggets that I provided you today was able is able to help somebody. Uh, in these trying times. Over to you, Pete. All right. Thank you, sir. Uh, does your vacuum cleaner have an afterburner? Well, it sounds like it does, but uh, I, I have managed to uh, to put some heat-deflecting uh, technology on it so that I don't burn the house up. <laughs> uh, sir, our, our, uh, uh, America's posture has always been that we could fight one major war and hold off on a second front until we could take care of the first front and then go full force on the second front. Do you think we have that capacity today? Well, I'm going to answer that question with a little bit of, um, um, when we did Desert Storm, um, we could not have done Desert Storm if it had not been as a coalition. Uh, for a lot of reasons. So coming out of Vietnam, one of the key lessons learned was that coalition, joint and coalition operations was the path of the future, and that has not changed. Um, so uh, I, I would answer that uh, America has to build its coalition partners to be able to exercise what you just referred to as, as, as uh, execute one campaign to a successful resolution and transition to the other uh, as a coalition. And there are uh, efforts on uh, that have been going on. Uh, the Kosovo campaign is a perfect example um, where uh, we see that there are, there are coalition partners who have uh, the leadership skills, the training, um, and the same level of conviction as uh, we would say America does. And so those coalition partners Got wrap it, uh, put into roles of leadership is going to be instrumental on in how we go forward uh, in these trying times of two uh, near peers, uh, in some cases. Hey, we got to wrap it up. Some of their technologies, they might actually be ahead of us. But it, we, we are in a contested environment. Uh, and and the, um, as I, you know, we all know that you can't fight yesterday, tomorrow's war with yesterday's tactics and techniques. 
you have to uh, uh, re- evolve Gotta go, and mature and and know and see what's the next driver, and and that's what we're doing. But I, I do share your concern. Thank you very much. Fascinating interview, Colonel. Uh, thank you so much for your service. I would read off all your awards and decorations, but it takes me like three years. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, sir. Uh, folks, join us next week. Fascinating interview, Colonel. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pete. God bless America, and thank you for your service, sir. Thank you, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.